So I just want to let you know how fortunate you are to have been uh, to have Shan Shan uh, uh, join you here in Hartford. We uh, thoroughly enjoyed having her. We were very lucky to have her as a fellow at uh, at Stanford University, and uh, uh, now you have that uh, amazing advantage. Um, and I also, as Shanshan mentioned, uh, Andy and I were uh, co-fellows together. I hate to say in 1982, 83, uh, but uh, uh, he he was just an amazing person, and I am really honoured to be able to uh, give this lecture in his name. So, with no further ado, let's talk about uh, dose and quality in pediatric chest CT. So what I'm uh, trying to achieve today is to uh, apply radiation dose concepts to pediatric CT. Hope, hopefully by the end of this, you will be able to do that. This is what you're supposed to do at the end of this talk identify appropriate CT techniques and parameters in children, and perform consistent high-quality chest CT imaging in children. So imaging using ionizing radiation really is an essential part of modern, measure, uh, modern uh, medical management. Uh, there's been uh, a tremendous uh, um, hullabaloo about uh, exposure to ionizing radiation and CT in particular, uh, but the Alara principle that radiation dose should be as low as reasonably achievable was not something that, uh, that was coined for CT. It was actually coined a long time before that by uh, uh, Jerry Sh uh, Shapiro, who was the head of the ACR at the time, uh, and, was, uh, uh, and was coined for plain film. So it, it's, radiologists have been aware of dose for a long period of time. And if some of you haven't been to the site, the imagegently.org uh, website, there's a lot of really good information and Image Wisely uh, a site for adult uh, dose information. But there's, uh, there's information for parents, information for uh, radiologists, for physicists, for clinicians that is really quite useful and not just for CT, for many different modalities. Uh, so I'm only going to st uh, talk a brief uh, bit about, about dose. When we look at uh, effective dose estimates, which is the, the number that most people are still using uh, for uh, looking at dose and comparing dose, uh, this was uh, compiled by uh, Karen Thomas, who's a physicist at uh, Sick Children's in Toronto, and sort of for a five-year-old child, and, and given in the context that annual background radiation, at least at sea level, is about three millisieverts per year. Um, and this is where dose sits for some of the uh, studies that we do. And you can see that chest CT, uh, at least on this chart, <coughs> is somewhere around three millisieverts. We're doing much better than that uh, nowadays. Uh, but we're talking about something in the region about, of months to years uh, for, uh, of uh, background uh, radiation equivalent for that. But, but CT is not the only study that is associated with radiation. We have to remember other things as well, like nuclear medicine, like uh, fluoroscopy. Uh, but CT was the, the uh, modality that sort of got the bad press. So when we're talking about dose, now I don't know about in Connecticut, but now in California, 
we have been for several years, we are obligated to report in the patient's chart uh, the CT DIVOL and the DLP that's derived from the, from the CT scanner on every CT that we do. Uh, and we need to know what it is we're actually re reporting. It's not the actual dose that the patient received. What it is is that the machine is calculating uh, a dose based on uh, a 10 centimeter acrylic phantom uh, that's either uh, a 16 centimeter diameter, the so-called head phantom, or a 32 centimeter diameter, the so-called body phantom. Um, and remembering that we need to know which phantom it was referenced to because the CTDI vol number that you get if it was referenced to the 16 centimeter phantom, you're gonna get a number that's about twice if it was referenced to the 32 centimeter phantom. The dose length product is the CTDIVOL multiplied by the scan length um, in uh, units of milligray uh, centimeters. Uh, so that's, those are the numbers that we're reporting and there's very little reference to what those actually uh, those numbers actually mean, although although there is more context as far as those are concerned, but they don't take a lot of things into account. So this is sort of uh, an example of the of the kind of uh, dose chart that that you get on the CT scanner uh, that tells you what the um, this, is, this was just for a, a, a routine chest CT, and you can see the topogram. Uh, uh, contributed very little to the CTDI vol or the dose uh, and there's the CTDI vol for the uh, chest CT and it's got an L next to it so at least now the scanner is telling us that it's referencing to the large or 32 centimeter phantom they didn't use to tell us that um, and there's the uh, the DLP uh, and the total DLP number of, of 54. And we can convert that uh, using uh, conversion uh, tables. Here's a, um, from, from this reference in 2010, which was specifically intended uh, as conversion tables for the 32 centimeter phantom and is different for different KVP. I'm just showing you the 1800 KVP. And for a five-year-old child, that's the conversion number. So it is taking into account the location. This is for the chest only, and also the age of the child. But but within, uh, you know, there's a range like one to five. Uh, and and if you do that and take the DLP and multiply it by a conversion factor, that number comes to about 1.7 millisieverts. So that's, that's about average, and again, we can do better than that now, but this was a couple of years ago. Um, but that's a way you can relatively easily calculate uh, the dose in millisieverts if you, if you want to. Now, just to give you an idea, this is a, a one-day-old uh, 3.2 kilo uh, baby who had a chest x-ray, and someone thought there was a pneumothorax, so they ordered a... They ordered a non-contrast chest CT, and so here's the non-contrast chest CT, and yes, there's a pneumothorax, but then somebody else noticed that, um, that the right chest looked a little funny too, and the heart was over on the right side, and it maybe wasn't just because of the pneumothorax, uh, and they got an echo, and the echo said there were lots of cardiac anomalies, and then they were thinking about some other anomalies, so they landed up getting a uh, gated CTA, 
uh, CT angiogram on the same day as we got this non-contrast CT. So, so we had the opportunity on the first day of life to do both studies. And here's the gated CT uh, angio, and here's some reconstructions of the gated CT angio. And you can see this is a scimitar syndrome, a child, a baby with, a, with an anomalous pulmonary vein uh, returning to the IBC and a small right pulmonary artery that we see in the upper image. And also there happens to be um, El Capo with an anomalous left coronary coming off the pulmonary artery, the right coronary comes off the aorta. Uh, so, so we, you know, we got a lot of information from the uh, CT uh, angio, and just to give you an idea of the difference, and not all chest CTs are the same, of course. Uh, Non-contrast spiral chest CT at 80 kVp, uh, CTDI and DL, the DLP was only nine, and it was less than one uh, millisievert, 0.73 millisieverts. Uh, for that study, and the gated CTA uh, used uh, uh, a lot higher CTDI. The DLP was uh, 43, which still isn't uh, terrible, but comes to a dose of about three and a half millisieverts. So that's about right, uh, three or four times dose for a, a gated. So a gated CTA is probably, or retrospective gated CTA is probably the highest uh, dose uh, CT angio chest study that, that we do. So why do we care? Um, we care because of uh, the possibility of inducing uh, cancer uh, from exposure to ionizing radiation. And uh, this is, this is the, the key uh, graph from uh, Dr. Hall's publication in 2002, which basically uh, uh, shows us that the, the smaller you are, the younger you are, uh, the more, uh, the higher the risk uh, that you face from exposure to ionizing radiation. And they're saying, uh, saying that uh, for uh, girls in particular, uh, more than boys, uh, little boys, that there's up to something like 15% lifetime risk of, uh, of developing cancer per sievert of exposure. Okay, and that as you get older, the, the risk gets to be progressively much lower. These are population averages. So we're talking about a, a rather small cancer mortality risk, one in 1,000 to one in 2,000 for a CT at 10 millisieverts. We're doing CT at quite a lot lower dose than that nowadays. So we're talking about if you've got a CT scan at 10 millisieverts, uh, in a small child, it's a, uh, or in anyone actually, the risk is about 0.05 to about 0.15%. To put that in context, which the public, which media often don't do, each one of us have, has a lifetime population cancer mortality risk of 20%, um, with an incidence of 40%. So each one of us has a likelihood of developing cancer in our lifetime of 40%. So you're only increasing the likelihood of cancer to like 40.05% um, by doing a CT scan. Children, however, are more sensitive, girls more than boys uh, because of uh, um, exposure to breast, because of e easier exposure to their gonads, uh, have, an, uh, have an increased uh, 
uh, organ radiation sensitivity, children in particular, they get um, more organ dose because they have less peripheral tissue to attenuate the beam. And we say that cancer risk is accumulative with multiple exposures. Um, we're not actually sure about that. Uh, there is obviously some opportunity for DNA to repair, but um, we accept that as the, the worst case scenario. Uh, and children, of course, have a longer lifetime for effects to manifest. So that's why we have to, in children in particular, be careful about ionizing radiation. So in the beginning, when, when we got all uh, happy about CT, we didn't really understand uh, that it was unlike radiographs, that, that it was digital, and that you didn't get overexposure if you used a lot of dose. Uh, you don't get poor quality images, you just get prettier and prettier uh, images. Uh, and, and it took a, a little bit of time to realize that you needed to reduce uh, adult doses and that you could easily reduce adult doses by at least 80, you know, uh, 40 to 80% and, and get high quality scans in, in young children and for that matter in, in young adults. But I do want to mention, this is, this is a, a term that was coined uh, by Paul Gilliman in, in, at Texas Children's Hospital is that, you know, he says, and, and I absolutely agree with this, that our, we should be thinking not just of image gently, but imaging intelligently. It's not a race to the bottom. Uh, and this is, you know, some of the problem is we try to get as low as we possibly can go. And that's not always a good thing. Uh, we have to find a balance between uh, dose and quality. So what are some of the things that the general strategies that we can use? Well, first of all, we should be careful about is, is the study uh, uh, indicated? Should it be a CT that we're getting? Um, is it better to get an MR or an ultrasound, uh, which are non-ionizing modalities? That's not always the case. Sometimes CT is the better study. And, and, uh, some t and um, MR has its own problems. Uh, time consuming, often requiring anesthesia. In recent years, anesthesia got a bad rap, and so CT has been a bit rehabilitated as a result. And um, an ultrasound doesn't always answer the questions, but sometimes it does. Uh, we need to know what the clinical questions are, what people want to get out of the CT, and then tailor the CT uh, to answer the questions that, that they're interested in. So we need to know, um, you know, the days of just ordering CT because I want it is, um, uh, needs to be over. And then particularly in, in pediatrics, uh, avoid routine multiple series. And we're still getting a lot of CTs from outside institutions where their routine sort of trauma CT is like three or four phases. You know, there are situations where you do need more than one phase. This is an example of a three-year-old with abdominal pain who had a CT scan uh, looking for appendicitis. And um, the person uh, checking the scan saw that there's several, there's free fluid adjacent to the liver, there's uh, free fluid in the right lower quadrant, there's some free fluid in the mesentery, and. Um, sorry, loculated fluid in the right lower quadrant. 
and was you know, going to say, oh, okay, this is probably perforated appendicitis, even though I can't see the appendix. Uh, and then uh, saw that, that you know, but wait a minute, why is the, why is the kidney, why is the hydronephrosis, uh, why is the pelvis uh, dilated? And uh, so decided to get uh, a later phase of imaging. And here on the later phase of imaging, you see that in fact, this, uh, these collections fill with contrast. And it turns out that this uh, little boy was punched in the stomach and uh, uh, perforated his uh, renal pelvis, probably had a pre-existing UPJ obstruction. But this was a case of uh, non-accidental uh, trauma, uh, not appendicitis. So, so yes, there certainly are times when uh, delayed imaging is uh, is indicated, and and renal abnormality is is one reason that we tend to do that. So, if you want to reduce dose, and we used to do all CT at 120 kVp. Everybody did. Nobody adjusted um, the kVp in CT. When I first came to Stanford 12 years ago, um, they were still doing every, every CT scan and every child was done at 120 kVp. And that's where the uh, dose reduction is, is where you get the biggest bang for your buck because kVp is the only parameter where uh, dropping that uh, number gives you exponential drops in, in dose. Everything else that you can control, things like MA, uh, gantry cycle time, uh, and in some cases pitch, those are all linear uh, in, in how they uh, respond to changes uh, in dose. Uh, just remember that manufacturers differ. Um, in, with some manufacturers, for example, you can't use pitch as a dose reduction tool because they automatic, they link pitch to MA and if you drop, and if you go faster on pitch, they automatically uh, boost MA. Uh, so, um, so you can't uh, do that. And, and the same uh, parameters for, for different uh, kinds of machines don't, don't work. They have different kinds of um, filtration and, and so on. So, so pr protocols are not referable from one manufacturer to the other. So let's look specifically just at kilovoltage because it is the single most effective dose reduction strategy. If you drop kVp from 120 to 100 kVp, uh, and that's the only parameter you change, you will drop dose by 39%. Um, you get the advantage of actually improving uh, contrast, but the disadvantage of increased noise uh, so particularly in small children and when you uh, want high contrast, uh, as in CT angiography, that's a really good time uh, to, to drop uh, kVp. And, and we, don't, we do very little CT now at 120 kVp. Almost all of it is at uh, between 70 and 100. Uh, this is some work that, that we did uh, uh, back in uh, 2010, um, uh, the work we did initially trying to get out of doing chest CT at 120 kVp, and we compared a historical uh, group of patients who were done at 120 kVp uh, with uh, newer patients where we were doing young patients at 80 kVp and uh, heavier patients at 100 kVp. 
<clears throat> and here's a comparison of two children who weigh almost the same, one at 120 kVp, one uh, chest CT at 80 kVp, with otherwise similar par uh, parameters. And uh, here we have the uh, soft tissue and the, and the uh, lung windows. And yes, there is a little bit more noise. If you look at the soft tissues, it's a little bit more salt and peppery. And I will say that you get used to looking at a little bit more noisy images and after a while they don't, uh, they don't bother you as much as they might have done in the beginning. But, but here we get the same study at 70% less dose. The vendors have done a lot uh, to uh, improve dose. In, in the beginning, every new iteration of CT scan that went from you know, single detector to, <clears throat> to 4, 16, you know, 8, 16, etc., each iteration led to higher and higher doses per scan. But with the newer scanners, that's actually reversed the trend. They have a lot of things uh, that they've um, introduced that are, that are very helpful. They include things like uh, um, a collimation, auto-modulation of the MA, even KV modulation, iterative reconstruction that you can uh, secondarily reconstruct uh, low-dose images to have less noise, and in particular having pediatric, specific pediatric protocols available on, on multiple scanners because a lot of pediatric scanning is not being done by pediatric radiologists. So that's all I'm going to talk about as far as dose is concerned. If I'll be happy to um, answer any questions either during the, the talk or, or afterwards. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more now about some of the more technical considerations in pediatric chest CT. So <clears throat> we used to do a lot of our chest CT, in fact, almost all of our chest CT with IV contrast essentially with the exception of HRCT. Uh, and now we probably do the majority of, uh, of the studies without contrast. We use contrast, obviously, when you're doing a CT angio, you're looking for a vascular ring or some sort of vascular lesion. For trauma, we, we use IV contrast. Uh, for infection, we still use IV contrast in children where the primary consideration is bacterial disease, empyema, or TB. And uh, I'll show you an example um, of, of why we do that and, and that it's really helpful in children. Remember, they have no natural tissue contrast, so the mediastinum just looks like a big white blob in the center of the CT when you, uh, when you don't use contrast. Uh, for, uh, we used to do contrast for all our oncology patients. Now, almost all of the follow-up oncology patients are non-contrast. Uh, the ones that have uh, chest wall tumors, mediastinal tumors, patients with lymphoma, uh, and the initial exam of all, all head and neck soft tissue tumors uh, do get contrast. And uh, if you're going to use contrast for the abdomen and pelvis, uh, if you're doing a CT uh, anyway, then you might as well use that same contrast dose for the chest. Bronchopulmonary malformations for the initial CT. Again, uh, you're looking for abnormal vessels. Uh, but, it, but mostly everything else uh, gets done uh, without contrast. Uh, here's an example of a three-year-old with a cough and fever and a complete whiteout of the uh, left hemithorax. 
and some cardiomediastinal shift to the right. So there's a suggestion that there might be some pleural effusion in, a, in and among whatever that is. And so they get a left lateral decubitus view. And of course, that's completely useless when you've got a, a, uh, a pacified hemithorax because you've got nothing to see the pleural effusion layering out against. So that's just another cautionary tale. It's, don't get a left lateral, don't get a lateral decubitus view in this circumstance. Ultrasound's much more helpful in deciding is there pleural effusion or not pleural effusion and how much. And this ultrasound shows there's moderate pleural effusion. Some of it, especially inferiorly, is, is loculated and strandy, again suggesting it's empyema. And uh, because this child was very sick and, and also immunosuppressed, uh, there is a C, there was a CT done, and this is one of the reasons why we do CT with contrast, is that you really get an opportunity to see what's lung and what's pleural effusion, and where the lung is atelectatic, like you're seeing in the lower lobe, because it's enhancing really well, versus consolidated lung, which tends to enhance very poorly. So we've got <clears throat> essentially consolidated lung in the uh, left upper lobe and atelectatic lung in the left lower lobe and a moderate pleural effusion. But contrast is really very helpful um, in, in children. The major technical considerations when you're doing pediatric chest CT are sort of our major enemies are motion and atelectasis. Um, we very rarely see sort of gross uh, patient motion like I'm showing you here on the right hand side where it's just about an uninterpretable chest CT because the patient's moving so much. Um, our scanners are faster and so we very rarely get that nowadays but atelectasis um, is really a very significant problem uh, in children and I'm going to talk about a, a little bit more. So when we're doing chest CT in, in young children, our, um, we're doing more and more without sedation anesthesia because CT is getting faster and faster. Uh, but sometimes uh, sedation anesthesia is still required. Uh, and atelectasis is a very common and very problematic quality issue. Um, I think we sometimes underestimate how substantial the risk of missed and misinterpreted findings are. I've seen atelectasis called all sorts of things, nodules, consolidation, metastases, uh, some sort of waffle can't, can't evaluate. And if you, and if you uh, repeat the study, and uh, you obviously expose the patient to additional uh, radiation. So the idea is uh, to do it right the first time. So the first question that we were asking ourselves is, is there a, re if, if we have to do sedation anesthesia, is there a re reliable and reproducible method for high quality chest CT uh, with anesthesia? And our anesthesiologists are responsible for sedating uh, patients for CT or MRI. And they tend to use uh, true anesthesia rather than just conscious sedation. And I have to say that when we used to do our own sedation uh, in Pittsburgh of, of patients, uh, we had less of a problem, maybe, um, maybe a little less safe, I have to say, but um, uh, less of a problem with quality. Um, and then the second question is, 
can we get reliable, high-quality chest CT in young children who can't cooperate uh, without breath hold or sedation? Because that's what we'd really like to do. And that's what people are moving towards, but it doesn't always work out so well. So if we're doing contrast-enhanced uh, chest CT, uh, in particular, we need uh, two major things. We need good lung inflation, but we also need good angiographic or good vascular contrast. So here's an example of a three-month-old male who had a prenatal um, bronchopulmonary malformation found in the left lower lobe, and uh, they're wanting to decide whether they're going to remove it or not, so they get a postnatal uh, CT and uh, he has two problems. First of all, he's under general anesthesia, and even though he's intubated, there's a lot of atelectasis at the lung bases, uh, and, and the contrast bolus is poor as well, so he's, he's got a, a double whammy. And uh, so um, they decide to repeat the CT scan, and the age-old ways we used to repeat the CT scan is patients intubated under general anesthesia. The anesthesiologist is very unhappy when you ask him to turn the patient in the prone position because you want to get a better look at the, at the dependent parts of the lung. And so they repeat the CT in the prone position and I don't know, maybe there's something. We knew there was something prenatally at the left lung base. Maybe that's the lesion, uh, but it's still pretty questionable. Uh, and the family did not want to get another study, did not want to repeat. The surgeons decided to operate on this patient anyway. And there was a sequestration uh, in the uh, left lower lobe at surgery. And we, we sort of did two CT scans and didn't help them very much. So that's really, doing CT and radiating patients without answering the questions is really a bad choice. Uh, this is another child. Um, who's a two and a half year old who's very sick with systemic JIA, who's jumping and thrashing around and the parents uh, wanted general anesthesia. And um, this is then uh, on a weekend where they're doing an emergency CT under general anesthesia and they're doing face mask uh, general anesthesia. And I come in on Monday morning and they ask me to please read this CT they did yesterday. Uh, does this child have involvement of his lungs uh, with JIA? And I said, probably. Um, <laughs> or, or, or is this consolidation? Is this pneumonia? I, I don't know how much is atelectasis. I don't know how much is pneumonia. And I don't know how much lung disease this patient has. Uh, this is just not a, a useful study. So uh, about a week later, um, we repeated the study using uh, a technique that I'll tell you about in a few minutes, intubation recruitment technique under anesthesia and um, get really well inflated lungs. And, and now I'm feeling much more comfortable telling them that the pathology that we're seeing, uh, the interstitial uh, peripheral abnormality and the abnormality we're seeing here 
you know, perihyla in the right middle lobe uh, is, is rheumatoid involvement of the lung. And then down at the lung bases, we're seeing interlobular septal thickening and, you know, the sort of crazy paving appearance. And, um, and that looks uh, like areas of, of um, alveolar proteinosis, which in fact uh, can uh, and does occur in association with systemic JIA, with, uh, usually with uh, mast cell activation syndrome, which is what uh, this child in fact had. Uh, so, so to give the appropriate information, you really have to get a good quality study. So this is the intubation recruitment uh, breath hold protocol that uh, that, that we use and our anesthesiologists have agreed uh, that when the lungs are the area of concern and the patient needs uh, anesthesia, that this is the technique that they will use. And we did a, a study in, in quite a large number of uh, patients that I'll show you very briefly. Uh, but this is the technique. We didn't develop the technique. It was developed in Perth, Australia. And uh, essentially the components are that there's got to be a, uh, start off with a tight-fitting face mask uh, for induction and IV placement, uh, continuous PEEP during that phase uh, of six to 10. Don't use 100% O2 because that promotes uh, atelectasis. Uh, prompt intubation, use the right size and, and well-positioned cuffed endotracheal tube. And then uh, before each phase of the scan, 10 to 12 alveolar recruitment breaths, quite high inspiratory pressures, 38 to 40, uh, with a PEEP of six. Uh, and then an inspiratory breath hold at 25 to 30 centimeters of water for the scan. And this is what you get most of the time. This is a 15-month-old. With cystic fibrosis, they want to get both inspiratory and expiratory studies, and the inspiratory is on the left, the expiratory is on the right. Uh, we do the recruitment maneuvers before each scan, and then for the expiratory, recruit, disconnect, wait eight seconds for the lungs to deflate, and then and then scan. And both of these are, are volumetric uh, studies. Uh, and with this, you can pretty reliably know that what you're seeing is is not just anesthesia induced abnormality but but abnormality that's really there uh, in these patients and get uh, nice quality studies uh, so between we looked at patients between 2007 2012 there were 56 prospective patients uh, who were done uh, in conjunction with the Department of Anesthesia with multiple different anesthesiologists who agreed to use the um, intubation um, recruitment technique uh, and was compared with a retrospective group. Actually, they were the same group of patients. Most of them were oncology patients who had um, multiple chest CTs. There were 70 other chest CTs under general anesthesia in the same children. Uh, but the anesthesiologists, knowing that we wanted good quality studies, used whatever method, whatever method they thought was going to be most effective, <clears throat> whatever method they liked. Uh, a lot of times it was LMA anesthesia. And uh, this was the uh, comparison, is that so the, the cases that were done with interpatient recruitment technique were the protocol cases, the non-protocol cases were anesthesia without uh, using uh, using whatever technique they liked. Um, 
and uh, the asterisks show the the areas that where there was a significant difference. Essentially, 70% of the case, cases that were done uh, with a protocol study uh, um, technique rated either very good or excellent versus only 24% of non-protocol scans. And you can see in the poor to satisfy, in the poor group there were many more uh, in the non-protocol cases, as well as even in the, in the ones that were only just satisfactory. I mean, there were some of the non-protocol cases where we got nice scans. It worked some of the time, but not in a very high percentage. As far as atelectasis was concerned specifically, 48% um, of uh, protocol cases had no or minimal atelectasis and only 25% of the non-protocol cases. None of the uh, protocol cases needed a, a repeat scan and five of the non-protocol actually had an immediate repeat scan because their scan was so poor. <clears throat> uh, one of the anesthesiologists did uh, some very uh, sophisticated physiologic studies of some of these patients. We didn't have anybody with a pneumothorax. We didn't have any serious adverse effects. Uh, he looked at uh, heart rate, respiratory rate, O2-sat, arterial blood pressure, and some, and some other parameters, and found no significant differences. Um, he figured out that uh, during the recruitment at these high numbers, and the numbers weren't chosen randomly, the 38 to 40 was because that's the opening pressure of alveoli. That's what you have to use to get alveoli that are atelectatic to uh, open. Uh, that the tidal volume for those 10 breaths was around 35 ml per kilo, whereas resting tidal volume is something like 12 ml per kilo. Uh, the mean end tidal CO2 uh, dropped to 24. Uh, the normal was 30 to around 30 to 45. But in spite of these short-term changes, we're only talking 10 to 12 breaths, uh, there were there was no instability and no cardiovascular compromise and, and, and no issues at all. Uh, this technique is not perfect, however. Nothing ever is. Um, this is a three-year-old boy with hepatoblastoma, and uh, we routinely check now the uh, endotracheal tube on the, on the um, initial scan because sometimes the tube uh, is too high or too low. He has one where the tube is down the right main stem bronchus. And uh, so this is the uh, initial scan, even using the intubation recruitment technique. Um, we had a fair amount of atelectasis, especially on the left side, but, but at both sides. And so, and they also had used an inadequate uh, peak inspiratory pressure. I think they'd only used uh, like 33 or 34. Uh, and here's a um, higher peak inspiratory pressure and, whoops, and repeat scan. And just a few minutes later, you've gotten rid of uh, almost, almost all the atelectatic lung and get a good quality scan. So in conclusion, when anesthesia is required, this uh, standardized, uh, properly performed uh, technique uh, is effective, reliable, and safe. Now, the next and, and perhaps more important question is, how well can we do without sedation or anesthesia? 
Uh, it requires a lot of input of, uh, of time and effort on the part of the people working in pediatric radiology. We need the input of child life personnel, technologists, nurses, uh, patient parent education preparation takes, takes a lot of effort. It's almost easier to just put a child to sleep. Uh, the parent uh, is usually in the scanner uh, and there's all kinds of distraction techniques, music, lights, movies, decor in the scanner. Uh, infants, uh, you can sometimes just feed, wrap and scan, but really the key is having a, uh, a piece of equipment that can do an ultra-fast scanning technique. Uh, that, you know, with the newer scanners uh, that can, that are very, very fast, uh, you can cover the whole, in fact, you can cover the whole body in less than a second in a, in a child. Um, the gantry cycle time in our scanner is very fast, 0.28 seconds. The table is moving really fast. You've got to make sure that um, there's nothing on the table that, that actually can be, uh, in the beginning uh, when, we, <laughs> when we first started using it, things would become like missiles, they'd be propelled off the table. Uh, it was going so fast. So you're doing this by using uh, high pitch um, in our case, uh, dual source detectors simultaneously, and you can use a pitch of up to 3.4. Uh, does not require breath hold. This very fast scanning kind of freezes motion. So we do it free breathing. This is an example of a 16-day-old little girl uh, with multiple anomalies, non-sedated, non-gated, ultra-fast CT angio. The scan time was a third of a second. Um, the detectors were at 70 and 70. Uh, the DLP there was only 10, so the effective dose for this beautiful CTA is less than one millisievert. And they don't always all work out this beautifully that you can see the coronaries without uh, any gating, but occasionally they, they do that. But, you can, but you, we get very nice scans, and these are some of the reconstructions. So, you know, you can't just uh, decide that you're going to use a technique or without kind of uh, trying to evaluate, not just in the occasional study that you get a gorgeous uh, picture, but can you routinely uh, get good quality uh, studies uh, using a technique like this? So we did an IRB-approved protocol young pediatric outpatients who were scheduled to have chest CT under general anesthesia. And, and, and our anesthesia department was really cooperative. They were on hand in case anesthesia was required um, for these patients. Uh, but they were prospectively uh, recruited and then, and then randomized where, where that was possible or placed, um, and sometimes parents wanted a particular technique and the IRB insisted that we had to give them that choice. Uh, all the radiology personnel, based on the assessment, uh, um, felt that they needed a particular technique. They were placed into three protocols. Either they had the GA intubation recruitment breath hold technique. Uh, we thought we'd give another try at doing um, lower level anesthesia without breath hold, that if we had this fast technique, why couldn't we give less anesthesia, get them on the table, do it very fast, and maybe we'd avoid uh, atelectasis uh, and, um, and then free breathing without anesthesia at all. Uh, so these were the three techniques. 
Uh, and it sort of almost gets boring that with the GA intubation recruitment breath hold technique, we get just these really well inflated lungs, almost no atelectasis at all, beautiful CT scan. Sadly, no matter how hard we tried, the GA non-intubated, uh, non-breath hold technique um, too often still turned out with the, the atelectasis happened very fast. Uh, and after we'd done 15 cases, we actually discontinued that arm of the study because it just wasn't working. Uh, but this was an example of uh, free breathing without anesthesia. And it's not as well inflated as the uh, uh, intubation recruitment, but, um, but really quite an acceptable scan and we really hardly have any. We have a little opacity at the dependent uh, at the lung bases, but nothing that would uh, create a problem for interpretation. So when we actually um, compared uh, a group we had, uh, at least initi initially we have more now, uh, 41 uh, patients uh, free breathing and 45 with intubation recruitment breath hold, uh, we found that that uh, overall image quality, atelectasis, all the parameters were a little bit better on the GA intubation recruitment breath hold, but only a little bit better. Um, the uh, free breathing ultrafast uh, chest CT really provide, uh, provided uh, quite sufficient Im uh, imaging quality for diagnostic purposes. And we could perform it successfully both without and with contrast in uh, young infants. Some examples, this is a two-year-old with Burkitt's lymphoma. And, and may I say, um, even with intubation, if it's not done correctly, putting an endotracheal tube doesn't automatically get you a great scan. Uh, this is a PET CT uh, initially. This child had a, um, a, a a CT scan and the tube was down the right mainstem bronchus and there's a whole bunch of atelectasis. And then there's a follow-up uh, CT uh, free breathing, non-GA. This child wanted to lay on their left side, so they let him lay on his left side and uh, got really a, a much, much nicer CT. Um, it's not perfect, again. This is a 21-month-old, non-sedated, ultra-fast uh, CT angio. And uh, this is a lesson we had to learn, uh, that uh, patients can kick and move in between the scout and the scan. And so the scout looks great, and then the top slice of the scan is halfway through the chest and the bottom slice is in the pelvis. Uh, and you have to repeat uh, to get the top part of the scan. So. Um, you know, these are the two uh, pieces stitched together. So, so not ideal because the contrast is gone by the time you get up to the top of the chest. So, um, so we learned that you have to uh, cross the legs and, and wrap them and make sure they can't move and kick, keep the knees straight. Uh, so free breathing in conclusion, all, you know, the free breathing technique gives us uh, good quality images without a, the uh, problem of atelectasis or a significant motion artifact. You have to pay attention to uh, careful patient immobilization. If you require anesthesia, uh, then intubation recruitment uh, breath hold gives you the uh, best quality images. 
non-intubation recruitment uh, uh, general anesthesia really is the least desirable method. Thank you.